Hey, and welcome to the 10th episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm Rania Kalik here with my co-host, Kevin Gastola. Hello, Kevin. Hello. Uh, today, Kevin and I are really excited to be joined by Aviva Stahl. She is an independent journalist covering the intersection of the war on terror and the prison industrial complex, which is like a killer beat. Um, and so Aviva recently wrote, Aviva, you recently wrote this amazing, uh, incredible piece for the nation uh, called How a British Citizen Was Stripped of His Citizenship, Then Sent to a Manhattan Prison. Um, and we'll link to that in uh when we post the episode. Um, and I, I don't think many people are aware that this is happening. I certainly was not. Um, so for those who aren't familiar with this particular topic, can you give a brief overview of what the UK is doing and maybe how this connects to the Obama administration's extradition and uh, I guess assassination program? Yeah, sure. Well, I guess I'll start to talk just a bit about citizenship deprivation in itself, since it's a pretty worrying and new trend in the UK. So citizenship deprivation, kind of as it sounds, empowers the British government to take away citizenship. So right now, dual citizens can be deprived of their citizenship. Um, it's really only been used significantly um, since the coalition government came into power in uh, 2010. Um, so I think there are kind of two aspects, just to talk briefly about the process itself that I think are particularly worrying. So the first is kind of the really secret and arbitrary nature of the process. So the in order to be deprived of your citizenship, all that needs to happen initially is for the Home Secretary to sign a sheet saying that um, it's kind of conducive to, it's conducive to the public good for you to be deprived of your citizenship. Mm. Um, there's no judicial scrutiny like before the fact. And the process for challenging these orders is really, really difficult. So like just to talk about one aspect, um, the process for challenging them happens in these courts that are called SIAT courts. Um, and it means that evidence that's um, held against you can be kept from both the person who's being deprived of their citizenship and their lawyer. So say they had some evidence against you that they alleged proved that you um, were involved in like Islamic, uh, extremis- Islamic extremism. The evidence could be kept from both you and your lawyer, um, which is pretty shocking, I think. Uh, the other aspect of uh, citizenship deprivation that I think is pretty worrying is the way it creates a two-tiered kind of racialized system of citizenship in the UK. So right now, because only dual citizens can be deprived, um, either someone who is naturalized or someone who has foreign-born parents, say their parents are Pakistani or whatever, and they automatically qualify for citizenship, um, it basically means that white so-called indigenous citizens kind of maintain all of their citizenship protections, but that people of color don't. Mm. That's a really, really good point um, that you also do make in the piece. And it's also so. Just to be clear, people are being deprived of their citizenship. They're not like you mentioned. Like they're not necessarily told about it, and oftentimes they're out of the country. Yeah. It, it, with the, the impression I got from your piece, um, and in some cases, like, and I guess this is maybe where we can, uh, you know, you might be able to talk a little bit about the U.S. connection or the possible U.S. connection, is where after people are, have been deprived of their citizenships through this really arbitrary, secretive process, there some people, like certain people, have gone missing, yeah. um, and in some cases they've, you know, in a couple cases it's like they've shown up in a U.S. prison. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and maybe even uh, and maybe even kind of go into the case of uh, what was the, there was one, or one of the people, there was one person who's in a Manhattan prison, right? Yeah. So I think there have been kind of two separate things happening related to U.S. foreign policy, which is that some people, two people have been deprived of their citizenship, deprived of their citizenship and then later killed in U.S. drone strikes. And then one individual that we know of has was deprived of his citizenship. And that's just a few weeks later was, um, kind of kidnapped by Djibouti forces, held for months and interrogated, interrogated by the CIA and the FBI, and then flown secretly uh, to the U.S., um, indicted, held for weeks um, under a false name in uh, MCC, Metropolitan Correctional Center, which is in Manhattan. And then only later, um, uh, in December 2012, was he finally, um, where the indict- was the indictment finally unsealed. So essentially that means that for a, a period of months, his family in the UK literally had no idea where he was. And it was only when they heard about this indictment through kind of the US press that they actually learned where he was being held and that he'd had this whole process of rendition happen to him. Um, so I think kind of, at least for me as someone who's uh, uh, really interested in the connections between domestic prison policy and foreign policy, 
um, it seems to me that the Obama government is using uh, statistical deprivation to kind of obscure these processes of processes of rendition. So the Obama administration hasn't necessarily come under the same kind of flack because the individual who's kidnapped wasn't British, or at least wasn't British at the time. Right, and had been being a British citizen, uh, you know, get, like gives you more privileges, I suppose, right, uh, than, you know, being not bringing a citizen of, like, Somalia only or whatever second dual citizenship somebody has that while being British. So, I mean, like, so if somebody's not, if somebody's British, what kind of, I mean, what does that mean if a person is British and is killed in a drone strike? I mean, would the U.S. government be held possibly accountable if that's the case? I mean... I mean, I think there's kind of two ways to think about it. So the first is that, you know, just like Americans seem to be much more interested in talking about what it means for Obama to be willing to kill a U.S. citizen in a drone strike than an unnamed or individual. Um, I think uh, so even one of these individuals who was killed in um, a drone strike um, was actually first reported when he was first killed. He was reported to be like an Egyptian militant or uh, his name was Mohammed Sakar. Mm-hmm. He was actually born and raised in, in England. He'd never lived anywhere else, and he always considered himself a British citizen. Um, but after he was killed in a U.S. drone strike, he was reported as, like, an Egyptian militant. So in some ways, it kind of erases, uh, I don't know, the angle of the story that might make kind of white Americans or Americans more generally think about it as a, a civil liberties issue. I think the other thing is just the way that um, the normal consular protections that British citizens have the right to... Um, they lose them. So when um, Mahdi Hashi first disappeared uh, after when he was living in Somalia and then he traveled to Djibouti, this is the individual who's currently being held in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. After he disappeared and his family learned that he'd been deprived of his citizenship, they called the British consulate to tell them that they he disappeared and they couldn't find him. And the British consulate replied, like, very simply, he's no longer a British national, so we can't provide you any kind of assistance. Ah. So I think that shows really clearly the ways that... Um, Essentially, the British government wipes their hands clean of the individual, and the American government is free to do with, to do with the individual, individual what they wish. I guess, Aviva, the, the thing I'm interested, too, about the U.S.-U.K. relationship is, and I think you, you note this a little bit in your story, is the, is the secrecy that is around this process. And I know that in trying to get some truth about the role of the United States in renditions and torture in the past, that the UK has been very protective on behalf of the United States. So I, I just am wondering what you might have to highlight in this relationship and, and how you see this process of stripping citizenship being driven um, by the United States and then how this is uh, intended, how there's this real commitment to keeping it entirely secret in service to the United States. Mm. I mean, I think one thing to note is that it's, it, there's definitely factors beyond just kind of U.S. foreign policy that are driving it. So right now, um, kind of, it seems like the majority of people who are facing citizen, citizenship deprivation are people who are allegedly, like British young men, who are allegedly going to fight in Syria. Mm. So that's really spiked the increased use of deprivation. But certainly, at least it seems like there's some aspect of U.S. interest involved. Um, and I think maybe the easiest way to talk about the secrecy issue is, um, uh, for example, on the issue of like GCHQ, like sharing locational data. So there was um, a lawsuit in the UK, um, I think, two years ago, where essentially the uh, reprieve uh, human rights organization alleged that um, the UK government was sharing locational data with the US that facilitated its drone strikes. Um, and the courts refused to hear it because they essentially would have to rule on whether the drone strikes themselves constituted a war crime before they could rule on whether the UK had passed on this kind of crucial locational data. And they felt that that was so kind of prejudicial to the national interest that they were unwilling to even hear the case, which I think shows just how um, how little the British government or the British judicial system actually cares about the rule of law as opposed to protecting U.S. national interests. And there is um, some evidence, um, significant evidence, that the that in cases of these two guys who were killed by drone strikes, that there may have been locational data even shared in that instance. Um, so, I mean, this is just one thing that I found um, really scary was um, the other, so the two men who were killed in the drone strikes, Mohammed Sakar, the second is Bilal Bourjawe. And he actually, um, his story is that the day that he died, 
he'd actually found out that his wife in the UK had had a baby. And so he called her British hospital room and hours later he was killed in a US drone strike. So I think even that kind of little story shows the thinking, the possibility about what kind of complicity might be ongoing. And then what about this larger issue of statelessness, you know, not to stray too far from this key human rights issue. I'd like you to just address the the vulnerability to these individuals, because not all of these people who have their citizenship stripped are immediately being, you know, subject to rendition or sent to a prison or some of them do end up in this, uh, this, you know, floating in this ether. Mm. Yeah. So for sure. So for right now, at least technically people are, aren't supposed to be able to be stripped of their citizenship unless they're dual nationals. But um, at the moment, going through the in the UK right now, and um, there's an immigration bill that's moving through uh, the House of Commons and the House, House of Lords. And there was actually an amendment introduced uh, very last minute by the Home Secretary, Theresa May, that would enable the British government to remove someone's citizenship, even if it would make them stateless, which really flies in the face of um, just international law, period. I mean, in, in international law, people really only have rights um, if they're protected by a state. So if individuals are made stateless, they have no, no government to advocate for their rights or their protections. Um, so I think, I mean, it's a pretty dark turn in uh, British history to imagine that people could be made stateless um, purely on kind of alleged grounds, especially given that there's, uh, given the way that citizenship probations happen, given the fact that um, it's not, uh, it's a civil claim. There are sort of these very many ways that, um, yeah, that, that the whole process just shows the, the uh, sorry. <laughs> you're fine. You're fine. I, I mean, it's in, I mean, it's pretty, it's incredible because it's, it's like the UK is constantly condemning torture, condemning rendition, condemning all these things. And it, it, the fact is they see, it seems like they're pretty vital, um, to that effort, uh, that they're constantly saying, you know, like washing their hands of and saying that they're better than, um, and meanwhile, I mean, like I get, but I guess, I don't know. It's, there's a, you know, when, when I think about Guantanamo and like, and like Shaker Amr, uh, you know, Mahdi, uh, Hashi's situation seems so similar or like in that sort of legal limbo, mm-hmm. uh, that it kind of makes you think like, this is sort of, Making, I mean, it just kind of, you know, no, no, this is a different note from like the, the citizen deprivation thing, but it just kind of, you know, makes you think about the fact that there's sort of like little mini Guantanamos um, yeah. inside the United States uh, when it comes to the war on terror and, and in prison. It's just like it's everywhere. It's not mm. just, you know, in this one little place. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if um, for people who aren't aware of the conditions at MCC, um, I mean, the conditions that Mari Hashi and others have been held in, they're really pretty extreme. So, I mean, there have been people held up to three years in pre-trial solitary confinement at MCC. I mean, I think it's really bizarre to think about the ways that kind of being on federal soil obscures the kind of torture that happens, whether at like ADX in Colorado or whether in downtown Manhattan. So, um, you know, people people like Bahad Hashmi and uh, Mari Hashi um, are kept in kind of uh, 23-hour-per-day uh, solitary confinement. They can only exercise in, like, an indoor cell for a few hours a week. They only see sunlight or, or breathe fresh air when they're brought to the courtroom. You know, they're permitted, like, one 15-minute of phone call per month to their family. And um, a lot of individuals held um, under suspicion of terrorism um, are constrained by special administrative measures, or SAMs, which... Um, essentially curtail any any lingering um, communication they have with the outside world um, and also put really stringent restrictions on their lawyers and their families on even being able to relay parts of the conversation they have in actually really quite similar ways that like a lot of the Guantanamo lawyers are um, unable to like Shakar Amro's lawyers unable to tell anything about his life or their conversations. So I think there are a lot of parallels um, definitely to talk about and actually I think it's really important for us to try to think about the way that Guantanamo is really modeled on kind of the the prison system here and that and the the way that um, Guantanamo isn't some aberration, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the context of the U.S. prison system. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, is there anything else you want to um, you want to ask? No, I, I thank you, Aviva, for uh, covering this story. It's it's critically important. And, and I'm glad that you were able to share uh 
some of your reporting with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, and we'll definitely keep an eye on your on, on your upcoming reports because, like I said, I mean, it's like this this uh, this kind of intersectionality between uh, you know prison the prison system and foreign policy is. I mean, there's I don't think there's anyone else really writing about it. So really appreciate your work. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye. <laughs> Hey, and welcome back to Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm here with Kevin, and we're uh, recording our 10th episode. This is exciting. It's definitely exciting. We've done some really tremendous work. I'm really proud of the fact that we've made it this far and, and how promising it is that we're going to keep continuing this. Me too. Uh, I'm so excited. I Thank you to all the people who've been listening and who have been like engaging with us on Twitter uh, and you know, suggesting topics to talk about. We love that. You know, We really want this to be uh, a listener, uh, you know, what's the word I'm thinking of? Listener engaged. We're building a community here where yes. we really want people to be interested and in, uh, in having some influence in, in the content of our, of our show because that'll make it a better podcast. Exactly. So um, we were so excited to have Aviva Stahl come on and talk about what is a very underreported topic. Um, and now we've got some other underreported topics to talk about. But first... We'd like to address a story that sort of took up most of my week, um, which is, uh, if you haven't read it already, uh, Max Blumenthal and I, if you don't, I'm sure you all know who Max Blumenthal is. He's like a really killer, kick-ass journalist uh, who writes about all kinds of stuff, but is probably best known these days for his uh, book on Israel. Um, But, yeah, so Max and I teamed up to write this piece uh, about the resignation of the RT uh, anchor, Liz Wall, um, and how it was stage managed by this D.C. DC group of neocons, really neocon journalists, um, led by, I I guess, Jamie Kerchick, James Kerchick. (laughs) Uh, And if you don't know him, he is a uh, very... Right-leaning, uh, right-leaning. Uh, I guess journalist, if you want to call him that, he writes for the Daily Beast quite often and is constantly cheering for uh, the U.S. to engage in war against some country. Uh, most often, or at least most recently, it's been Russia. Russia's been the new target of these people. Uh, they they really want like this. They really, they really want like a resurgence of the Cold War. It's actually really kind of creepy, um, and they sort of used. They used Liz Wall's resignation from RT. Uh, she resigned. If you're not, you know, if you don't know that story, she resigned on air a couple weeks ago um, and became sort of an overnight media sensation. Uh, she resigned because of RT's abysmal uh, coverage of the situation in Ukraine. I mean, it has been really awful uh, and very, like, very much propaganda. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, but yeah, a couple of days after Abby Martin. Um, came out uh, on her show on RT, breaking the set, saying that she disagreed with the editorial line at RT and that, you know, she uh, she basically declared her editorial independence and said she's against what Russia's doing. A couple days later, Liz Wald, anchor, uh, resigned on air, saying that she was against... Uh, she was against what Russia was doing and calling RT like a Putinist propaganda outlet, yada, yada. And so basically, uh, it, you know, it turns out this whole thing was was uh, stage managed uh, by a, a group of these like neoconservative journalists in D.C. Uh, who are sort of using it or have used uh, it and RT in general as like a way to launch an attack, like a media attack really against against Russia launch, if, if anything, launch their own propaganda against why, like, we need war with Russia, really. And it's actually, it's really creepy. And so before we get into that, though, I guess, Kevin, you should maybe address uh, what happened with you, because you were also investigating this story. Yeah, parallel to what you and Max and Rania were doing. I I'm, ended- I'm Rania. That was really funny. You just said what you and Max and Rania are doing, and it sounded like <laughs> three separate people, but I, I just thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I just... <laughs> Trying to get my head around so many things this week, so yeah, I feel you. I've made the flub. Uh, so, doing this investigation because I was interested in finding out what had really happened around Liz Wall's resignation. I myself 
chose to contact uh, Jamie Kerchick, and I also chose to contact and, and call Liz Wall. Uh, I made a misjudgment uh, in calling Kerchick. I left a voicemail message, and when I left that message, I mentioned that uh, I was writing the story for First Look Media. Uh, that was wrong. I had pitched the story to The Intercept, and in a freelance capacity, I believed uh, that, that the story was going to appear on The Intercept when it was completed, but there had been no formal contract, so I was not, uh, it was inappropriate for me to mention their name. And the message that I left for Kerchick was uh, uncharacteristically aggressive, so that made First Look even more uh, nervous about the fact that I had mentioned their name. So I also called Liz Wall, and I was leaving her a message. And in both of these messages, I basically previewed what I had found out about each of them and what would likely appear in a story. And with Liz, I mentioned some of the information that I had come to find out about her background in working at RT, which is stuff that you ended up putting in your article. And, um, and it's stuff that you found too. And then with Liz, I left the message and 20 to 25 minutes later, she called me back. So people who have seen this, that there was a voicemail as Dave Weigel mentioned in his pathetically awful story <laughs> at Slate, which is basically like, how can I be convinced not to care about this story any less than I already do? I guess I'm going to go write a story tonight because Slate's paying me. So I guess I'll cover, after having this sit-down conversation with Liz Wall, what I just did, because I don't want this to be a waste of time completely. And so... Apparently, Liz played him my voicemail message, and she p presented it as being threatening. I don't think it's threatening. In fact, I laid out directly what I had uncovered about Liz because I wanted to give her a chance to provide me a comment, and she apparently did want to pr provide me a comment because she called me back 20 minutes later. And so if she really does think it's threatening, she should have a journalist publish that voicemail message because I think the uh, message that people hear will be vastly different from the one that I left for Jamie. Well, that's, I mean, that's a good point. I think that you should totally bring that up to her, but, um, but back to the one for Jamie, I mean, I'll admit, like I listened to like, I listened to it and I was like, what the, like, what? I mean, it's like, and, and I guess anyone who's familiar with your work might listen to that message and be like, and probably have the same reaction. Like, what was he on? Like, cause it does say it does. Like you said, it sounds very un uncharacteristically aggressive. Um, not at, like it just, and, and I think in one part of it, um, and I'd like for you to like, maybe uh, we should probably explain this uh, because I, it took me a minute to get this, but there's one part where, uh, where like, so to be, let, let me go back for a second. So Jamie, James Kerchick, Jamie Kerchick, I guess as, as, as he calls himself, um, he, uh, he like sort of came, you know, he, his name grew in the media when back in August, he went on RT uh, well, he was invited on to, to, to a panel on our, on like RT international channel or something to talk about, uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, at the time that we were waiting for the verdict to come out for, for Chelsea Manning. Um, and a couple of weeks before that, uh, he had written, J Jamie had written a story, uh, I think in the New York daily news, basically calling for the execution of Chelsea Manning. Um, I mean, that's what it basically amounted to or saying that, you know, that, 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 that's the kind of punishment that she should face. Um, so Jamie went on to talk about, was invited on to speak about this topic because of that piece. And he, and he like admits this and like this, this post he wrote, like this op-ed he wrote for the, for the Washington post afterwards that he basically went on to, uh, to, you know, cause a public to like, cause a public protest, like to basically go on and, and troll RT about Russia's anti-gay law. Um, and that's what he did. So for like two and a half minutes, when it was finally his turn to speak, he starts putting on these like rainbow colored suspenders. Um, and Jamie, Jamie Kerchick is openly gay. Uh, and so he, a, a lot of times like he'll, he'll write about LGBT issues. Well, actually no, he'll write about like gay issues because he is a super big transphobe. Um, if you're familiar with any of his work on, 
uh, related to, to trans issues. It's like horrendous. Um, but yeah, so he often tries to use, uh, like homophobia as like a wedge issue for like his own purposes is what I've noticed with him, uh, which is really sad actually. But so he went on RT and like, and just like went on this tirade about Russia's anti-gay law. And then, I mean, Russia's anti-gay law is terrible. Uh, it's like horrific and like, there's no excuse for it. And I, I mean, like, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have protested that law, whatever. But basically what he did is he went on and, and he, and he like, just like slammed, like he, he yelled at the anchors and yelled about the station constantly talking about, you know, Bradley Manning and constantly talking about Edward Snowden, but never talking about Russia's anti-gay law. And then after like, they let him go on for like two and a half minutes and like asked him and they tried to like get him back to talk about Chelsea Manning. He wouldn't. So eventually like that was the end of that interview and it was over. And, like, not long after that, the Washington Free Beacon put up a post. Washington Free Beacon is this D.C. Uh, neocon-run outlet that uh, that uh, it, it just runs really awful stories. Um, uh, and he, so the Washington Free Beacon posted, like, a, a piece, like, an hour later. Uh, and, like, they had, like, edited the video to just show, just show Kerchik's um, interview, just to the part where he was talking. And they were like, Russia, you know, Russian um, government funded TV station or whatever, or TV network, like, kicks kicks off gay reporter for protesting gay law. I mean, it was like some ridiculous headline like that. Uh, like, making it sound like they, like, kicked him off because you're not allowed to talk about that on their network. Um, and so that, like, was picked up by other mainstream outlets, like, without question. Um, and so Jamie basically made a name for himself doing that. And, uh, and the reason I'm talking about all this is because there was, like, some... Some there's some footage posted later on on YouTube of like him taking he's like if, right after the interview the cameras are still rolling and he's in like I guess a studio in Sweden at the time and he like is getting he's taking his mic off and he basically says uh, I just come on to fuck with the Russians and he's like laughing about it and so uh, and and in our piece Max and I like quoted that um, because that seems to be like an obsession of his. Uh, which is fine, I guess. But I think that's important to note because of your voicemail. You said uh, you basically you like referenced that quote, but the way you referenced it, like it didn't sound like you were quoting anyone. It sounded like you were telling him not to fuck with the Russians. <laughs> like, I don't know if you noticed that. Did you know? Did you like when you listened to your voicemail? Did you notice that, Kevin? Well, well I get that now because the critics who who have pointed out the voicemail. People like uh, Rosie Gray, uh, Jamie, um, and also Jonathan Shaked, they drew attention to that in trying to cast me as some kind of dupe for Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and what I'll note is that the Daily Beast put fuck the Russians in quotes. They did, yes. They did. So, so they did. it was clear when they were listening to it, they knew what I was saying. So uh, this charade of this being part of me wanting to intimidate Kerchik into uh, backing down and, and, and not putting attention on the Russian people or the Russian government, uh, that's just a whole smokescreen thrown up in order to ignore what it is that they are actually doing and what they support, which is as you and Max investigated, I, I think it's very important for us to not be drawn too much into what I happen to make the mistake of doing, which is leaving voicemails for these people. Um, well, actually, I don't think the one for Liz was that much of a mistake because Liz called me back and I talked to her. Right. And and um, on air here, I can, t I can tell people that Liz's this is the first thing that came out of Liz's mouth when she called me. Um, she said, and she was immediately defensive, if you want to work with this propag propaganda machine that's putting out lies about me, you can go ahead and do that, but the truth is the truth, end quote. Quote, you can do whatever you want if you want to work with them to defame me, but it won't probably be in your best interest. And then... Because she's kind of like a wind-up doll. She just launched into doing this again. She just said, they're a propaganda machine, and they've already put out lies about me. And the truth is going to come out, so if you want to work with them to defame me, you can go ahead and do that. And this is basically her thing. This is, 
This is all she has in this when when talking and, and being confronted with the possibility that there is something more to it. Like, so let's I mean, you, you, you address this. Liz may actually believe that what she did was genuine, and it probably was. And she she probably did want to leave RT. Yeah, no, and, it sounds like. Well, let and, me let me be clear too. Is like this isn't this isn't to attack her. Like it's. I mean, she I, she seems to believe that this is all to like defame her and attack her. But the fact of the matter is that like she just. What she did was cool. Like, I thought she was, I thought at first what she did was cool because, like, yeah, like, she's working for this network that's totally whitewashing what's happening. Um, and I thought it was, you know, and it was kind of brave, right, to, like, go on air. And, like, I thought it was a little bizarre that she was, like, I'm proud to be an American. Like, that had anything to do with it. And that's uh, where I'm sort of but, trying to. Well here's, well, here's where my issue comes into play is that, like, I think that it's really disingenuous to after – like to after condemning propaganda to then go on like to then you know surround yourself with people who literally on a daily basis are engaged in doing just that but for the US government uh who literally not even just the US government i mean who literally like meet with i mean there's a whole like section like i you know in the P, in Mac, you know max and i really broke this down like of you know the this like group of journalists, I mean, they meet with lobby, like they literally like have lunch dates with freaking lobbyists. Uh, and they're like on these FARA documents, like, you know, meeting with like, Michael Goldfarb, this lobbyist for the Georgian government, among his many other wonderful, you know, uh, wonderful employment position, <laughs> positions of employment. I mean, it's like insane. It's like, this is what's so disingenuous about what she did is like, she's surrounding herself with these people, uh, who on, and on top of that, like she's, she's like making, I mean, she, she keeps, she's making it sound as though like RT is exceptional when it's not, this is what media does, like whether it's state funded or, or corporately funded. Um, and I, I find it really, really, uh, inconsistent, I guess for like her to go on like Fox news and talk about how she wants to take a job, like, like talk about, you know, giggling about how she wants to take a job at MSNBC and CNN and like, like how all these places are so respectable and lovely when like, dude, they engage in the same bullshit. Like let's not pretend that the Iraq war like didn't happen even worse. Like let's not pretend that the U S media didn't shill for the Pentagon, uh, were like as bad or if, if not worse than the way that like RT is, uh, doing for, for Russia. I mean, and that's not to excuse RT whatsoever. Like it's propaganda should certainly be exposed and discussed. It's important to like understand and acknowledge that stuff. But like, like, don't kid yourself. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and let's also not pretend that, like, in the U.S. media, there is any space or room for people to do what Abby Martin did. Like, there is not. And there's proof of that. I mean, you had, like, you had anchors or you had, like, uh, like TV show or I'm sorry, not TV show hosts. You had an MSNBC host, Phil Donahue, fired for coming out against the Iraq war. You had, like, I'm pretty sure Chris Hedges was fired from the New York Times, but, like, let go because he was consistently writing anti-war stuff. Stuff. Like around that time, I mean, this is you have like a, a, literally Pentagon officials like speaking anonymous, anonymously to like Judy Miller and like you know spreading stories and to meet the to meet the press about like yellow cake and shit. I mean, it's like and this, this is it's just crazy to pretend that any of these outlets have any more credibility. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's what I find so disingenuous is that she's surrounding herself with these people who like want war. They're literally war hawks. These are the same people who like, or these are being, these are people who are attached to the same think tanks and being funded with the same money by the same people who like were the architects of the Iraq war. Um, who are the architects of every war. These are the same people who want war with Iran. These are the same people who wanted to bomb Syria. Like this is what they do. So don't sit there for like, that's, that is what makes me so angry about like the way that the, I mean, I guess angry is not really the word. It's more just like an outrage, I guess, in general. And it's like frustrating the way that the mainstream media has just like really, I guess, like all of a sudden these people, all of a sudden these, these people, these warmongers are like credible individuals because of this RT shit. Like now you see like on Laura's O'Donnell who, or Donald, who I used to have like a little bit of respect for at least, uh, you see him having like Kevin Kerchick on to like come be a pundit on this stuff all of a sudden, like all of a sudden these people are credible like give me a freaking break and that's where i was that's where i was headed is is to say i really wanted to confront wall because if her pro okay her protest was genuine 
let's I'm willing to give her that. But what are you doing now? I mean, I I, I asked. Well, her, I don't know. I, I actually, before you get into that, I actually question how genuine it was because you know what, RT has been whitewashing the Russian government doing awful things for quite some time. I mean, there's Syria for one thing. I mean, why didn't she quit during that? Why didn't that upset her as much? Or if it did upset her, fine. But like, we, you know, I just, I just take it. I, I, I'm also just irritated because now I'm getting like these like smears from her. Like all of a sudden, Rania Kalik is anti-Semitic. Like, there's like a picture. Look. I took a picture at the National Press Club. I went to an RT holiday party. Uh, uh, I was invited to an RT holiday party, and I went, and it was at the National Press Club, and there was, like, a picture of Netanyahu on the wall, of, of Benjamin Netanyahu, the, the leader of, uh, of the supreme leader of Israel. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, like, a really funny picture of him. And so I took a photo, or, I, I, like, I, I made sure to take a photo of me flicking him off. And I also took a photo with Abby of the both of us, Abby Martin of the both of us flicking him off. And you know who took that photo? Liz Wall. Liz Wall actually snapped that photo when she was laughing hysterically, like, it was the funniest thing ever. And now she's, like, trying to use this photo against me, like, oh, Rania, Rania flipped off a war clip criminal, so, like, she's not credible or she's anti-Semitic. Like, she literally called me anti-Semitic in a... In, on Twitter. I mean, that is like what she's throwing at me. So yeah, I have a really hard time finding anything that comes out of her mouth genuine whatsoever, including her protest, her supposed and, protest. And, and that's a fair point. But what I was trying to, I guess, meet her halfway and say, you know, like, let's assume I, I can convince myself that what you did was genuine. I'm not saying that I personally believe that anymore, but let's assume just for the purposes of the fact that I'm trying to get you to answer some simple questions here. And the thing I wanted to know was, why are you associating yourself with a foreign policy initiative fellow? You talk about objectivity, but you've gone from working for a Russian-funded network to cooperating with someone with just as much, if not more, of a shameless agenda. And I really wanted an answer to that question. And this is something that Liz won't answer. She won't answer how she could do these media appearances and repeat these words, these, these code language that seems to be right out of some script that uh, maybe David Frum would have fed her so that she, <laughs> she could have like a guide on how to work the media as she toured CNN, MSNBC, the View, Colbert Report, wherever she was going, and uh, which Stephen Colbert totally had his way in that interview, and it was magnificent to watch her not really know how to handle his humor. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, it's just it, that is a critical point. And then you know, the larger thing is just to to bring it back to the story here, the the the, the why we find this remarkable, why people could care about this story and it isn't just about it isn't just about us i i think yeah you know, sorry the, the, it, it isn't just right. about us being on you know twitter and having difficulties with individuals who are nitpicking everything that we say now and and these people who are engaging in things that are like uh basically you know, baiting us as anti-Semites, baiting us as being anti-gay individuals because of of what we're doing. Uh, That is not the issue. The issue is the fact that this is a person, Jamie Kerchick, who works for Foreign Policy Initiative. And in that capacity, there are people who work at the top here who are connected to... uh, have a history of being involved in the Iraq war who are known to have a past background in media manipulation and behind the scenes coordination Mm -hmm. of using innuendo and insinuation in order to get people in this country to value going after other countries and Mm -hmm. showing force, you know, putting military force out in front and putting that, making that more important than peace and diplomacy, craving a confrontation Mm -hmm. with these countries like Russia, China, Iran, and, and, and wanting to impose their agenda, wanting to advance their worldview about how things should be set up, wanting to impose their agenda for United States empire. And I think that at minimum, when we see these people 
coming and, 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 and starting to organize and engage in whatever sort of act they want to do, whether it is small, you know, we owe it to ourselves as journalists to ask questions earlier than later about what it is that is happening. Right, and I, th- I think, and I think if I can just make one oh, final point here, if I could just make one final point here, which I think you're going to have a lot to say about is this could have developed into a lot more is what I'm going to argue is that, Liz Wall going out there at the moment that she did on air to talk about um, RT and to talk about the importance of, of of standing up, of drawing a red line is how she put it, mm-hmm. and, and taking a stand against what Russia is doing because it's wrong and, and the poor Ukrainian people. And yes, I, I value freedom, justice, democracy anywhere in any place in the world, and I think it's very important to stand up for human rights. But I think when you have some group that is connected to you and this is your message and they have a history of doing things that are disingenuous and that are completely disconnected from human rights and, in fact, are about war. Because when we get done with this conversation, we're going to highlight the anniversary of the Iraq war. And we're going to tell you and show you exactly what it is that will happen when these people have their way. And this is the sort of thing that can happen is if – we don't nip it right away when they are trying to impose their agenda and get into the media and talk about their ideology, then we run the risk of having another episode that is similar to the Iraq war. Yeah, I think that's actually an excellent way to like segue out of this and into what, yeah, like you said, is, is that this week was the 11th anniversary of the U.S. illegal invasion of Iraq, which kicked off. Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, fucking like, excuse my language, a decade. I just, it's like so awful. Just oh, oh, now over a decade of just horrific, uh, a horrific, like ongoing war crime. That is Iraq. Uh, I mean, it's that, that country is worse off by far than it was under the brutal dictator of Saddam Hussein, which says a lot. Uh, we destroyed that country. We, uh, pitted, you know, various religious sects against one another. We trained death squads uh, that are still, you know, ru- that are still running around as armed militias for a corrupt regime that we still continue to arm despite uh, rape rooms and torture chambers and war, like continued war crimes against his people because uh, the U.S. isn't there to commit them anymore, I guess. Um, I mean, it's a freaking, it's a horror show. Uh, and every single day, like every single day, almost every day, there's more, there's like, there's bombs in Baghdad or there's like, you know, shootings, uh, in one area or another in, in places like Fallujah, there's like birth defects that are just out of this world insane that like the pictures, like to look at the pictures of them is just like literally breaks your heart and makes you feel so like powerless and helpless because there's like nothing you can do to help these people. Um, and that these people are still continuing, like, to be under assault, uh, despite, like, these ridiculously high cancer rates. I mean, the women, the situation for women, I mean, basically, like, religious psychopaths, religious fundamentalists are in charge. There was recently a law passed, uh, I believe, in Iraq, and you might know more details about this, Kevin, because I, I know you wrote about it in your piece, a law that basically allows, like, girls as young as nine to be married, um, and like this, this is the country that we've given Iraq. I mean, there's like, there's like massive sex trafficking happening. And I know I, you know, I hate, I hate like the Nick Kristoffs of the world who like use sex trafficking to like, who tell who like over, over, uh, exaggerate sex trafficking and like conflate it with sex work, like legitimate sex work. But in this case, there's like massive sex trafficking in Iraq that's been ongoing that like, you know, not too distant past, there was like killings of prostitutes that were taking place by religious fundamentalists who basically have taken hold of certain areas because the U S like, because of the chaos we wreaked. I mean, it's like the list goes on. It's so bad. There's widows, there's millions of widows, millions of orphans. There's like an entire lost generation. Like that country literally like there was the, you know, a lot of like really hardcore war hawks would say, let's bomb it back to the stone age. Like they literally bombed Iraq back to the stone age. Like that was a still, like, it's like, that is like the cradle of civilization is what like that area is supposed to be. That's what we like to leave. That's what we call it, you know? And it's literally like, just, I mean, it's destroyed. Like, I don't even know how else to, and this is, this is the legacy. This is the legacy of neoconservatives. Um, this, you know, these are the same people 
who were largely responsible for what, you know, the chaos and the devastation and the death squads and the war and the still, you know, like the coups in Central America um, back, you know, during the 80s, 70s and 80s. And like once they, you know, they got, you know, they had power again uh, and, you know, we're, you know, up and we're in the Bush administration. I mean, this was this was their project. Iraq was their thing. This is what they did. And rather than be discredited, rather than be like ostracized, rather than be sitting in, you know, jail cells if they were the ones who actually executed these policies. Instead, the people who were responsible for this horrific, like horrific, I don't even know what you can call it. I mean, it, I, I, honestly, like it's like a 21st century uh like crime against humanity that literally like is on par with the kind of stuff we saw in World War II, in my opinion. That's like how bad, that's, the, that's how bad Iraq is. Like, and I don't think that's over-exaggerating. Um, and, and so I guess like my point is, is that these people get to still go into the media. They still get to be on TV. David Froome like still gets to go on television. He was just hired by the Atlantic. The Atlantic just hired him to write about foreign policy issues. Like, this is what happens. Condoleezza Rice has, like, tenure, okay, as, like, a, prof- as, like, a law professor. She is teaching uh, the next generation of, like, war criminals about how to be war criminals uh, and how to legalize it. I mean, literally, that's what's happening. Like, George Bush, George W. Bush, like, you know, is, like, a bestseller. Dick Cheney, uh, I don't even know what Dick Cheney does. I imagine he, like, sits in his creepy basement and, like, plots against the world because he's, like, a Darth Vader character. Well, he gets uh, to jump to the front of the line and get a new heart whenever he needs right, it. Yeah. Other people who are poor have to die. Exactly. Pretty much to keep Dick Cheney's body going. Oh God, that like he's like a cyborg. I swear. I mean, like this is this is what's happened. Like this is and now you know, all this time later, it's like no one's talking about Iraq anymore, even though it's still a mess. Uh, even though it's like an ongoing crime. Uh, and instead, these 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 same neoconservatives uh, are really they've rebrand they've rebranded themselves. Uh, they 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 don't have as much credibility about the war on terror anymore because Iraq was so turned out so bad. Um, and I don't think that will be for very long, though. I think like you know. Uh, for the most part, people are already forgetting. But in terms of, like, what they're doing now, I mean, they've really rebranded and moved on to, like, a new part of the world, and that's Eastern Europe and Russia. That's, like, their new thing. And um, and so, yeah, I think, like, that. what you said, Kevin, it, 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 like, it could not be more true. And that is why it's so important. Like, this isn't just he said, she said, back and forth, like, drama between journalists. This is serious, serious stuff. And, like, these the, the type of propaganda that that the James Kerchicks of the media world are pumping out the type of the type of stuff they're involved in it has serious consequences when it works yeah let's let's be blunt and direct and anybody who is listening to this show can tweet at Jamie Kerchick at j k i r c h i c k and ask him just ask him reasonably which country's government are you writing for now? Which lobbying firm is paying you to write the next story that you're going to publish about whatever they would like you to put uh, a bow on and present to the world as this great thing that is happening in that country? Or, or, or what are you going to be paid next to call attention to because that government doesn't like this thing that is happening that this other country is doing to them and would like the U.S. to be drawn into some kind of conflict or, or issue and have greater involvement. You know, what, what, what are you going to do next, Jamie Kerchick? I and, that- and I think, I think that's, that's something that needs to be emphasized here is what people need to understand is I think that, that, that Jamie as he beats his drum and talks about how he's opposed to state-funded media, it's not true. It's simply not no, true. This is a person who has worked for Radio Free Europe. He's opposed to state-funded. That's what I was going to say. He's only opposed to state-funded media. When this is a state, person a who... he doesn't like. No, no, it's even worse than that. It's He's opposed to state-funded media that is coming from countries' governments that he would like to see the United States go in and bomb. There you go. That's even, yeah. <laughs> That's much more accurate. Or whose, like, country he'd like to see a regime change in, whatever the case may be. I mean, yeah, this is, like, I mean, this is this is really, um, 
this is why this is, this is so important. I mean, I don't know if there's anything that I didn't mention about Iraq that you wanted to throw in. Cause I know that you wrote a really, really, uh, a really powerful piece, I think, uh, about the 11th anniversary of the Iraq war and just like how horrible everything is there. So I'm not, yeah. Is there anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah. So I wanted to move beyond, uh, the, the, the direct going after and just, making sure that we do highlight what is wrong with what people like Jamie Kirchick do. And I wanted to move on to the people of Iraq and then maybe a a little bit about the media before we wrap up our Mm -hmm. podcast here. And so for people who are listening, the one thing I do want to share is a couple of these descriptions that are in this really horrifying Human Rights Watch report about the abuse of women in Iraq's criminal justice system. And just to to say that this really brings to life what is happening in this judicial system that has so much torture happening, that has rampant corruption, and how people are being beaten and mistreated and even they're these they're tortured and they're made to confess to crimes that it can involve things where where later they are in fact executed they this has a real impact on them they die uh so one of the people in the report her name was uh the name that human rights watch gave her was isra salah to protect her they they met in a death row facility when human rights watch met with her she had crutches she had suffered Nine days of beatings. She had electric shocks with an instrument known as the donkey. And also something um, uh, had suffered torture known as falaka, which is when the victim is hung upside down and then their feet are beaten. And uh, this happened in March 2012. She was permanently disabled in March 2012 and then uh, had scars and she had burns on her breasts. And later she was executed in September of 2013. Uh, Fatima Hussein is a journalist who was accused of murdering a parliamentarian's brother and of marrying an Al-Qaeda member. She was physically and sexually tortured. A colonel named Colonel Ghazi blindfolded her, tied her to a column. She was then electrocuted with an electric baton. Her feet and back were hit with a cable. Her hair was pulled. She was tied naked to the column. She had cigarettes extinguished on her body. She was also handcuffed to a bed and forced to give oral sex. She had blood all over her, and she was raped multiple times. And what would happen is the colonel would relax, he would smoke a cigarette, he would have a few puffs on it, and he would put it out on her buttocks and then start violating her again like he had been doing before. This is the kind of brutality and sadism that is happening in Iraq Post-U.S. occupation. What happens is uh, things like Maliki will go and do what? Oh, I was just saying this is is at the hands of the government that we put in place, that the U.S. put in place. Yeah. Well, what will happen is that uh, Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki will do these press conferences and you'll have individuals that should be highly respected, like the the U.N. chief, Ban Ki-moon, say – that you need to put a moratorium on executions. Your criminal justice system is killing people who have confessed to crimes because they were tortured, essentially. And that's wrong. And you need to fix your system before you can continue. I mean, the UN technically probably doesn't want to celebrate the death penalty. That's not the sort of international body they are. I think they generally don't like countries that have the death penalty, like the United States and and Iraq. Um, But... uh, if you're going to do it, you better not be torturing people to get them to confess to crimes. And then what did Maliki do? He shot back, you know, oh, Iraq, we're going to continue to do what we're doing. We're, we're not going to. There are, these are dangerous people. We have to kill them. And, you know, our government, the United States, continues to send weapons to them. We're sending Apache attack helicopters there. And they keep getting these weaponry. And, and what happens is in getting these weaponry, they feel like what they're doing is is not wrong and uh and you know they feel like they have the support of the united states and then in all of this as all of this goes on as iraqis suffer as you have women who are 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 being raped sexually assaulted as you have individuals who are being born with birth defects and you have the united states continuing to ignore the fact that they use things like uh depleted uranium and it uh impacted the iraqi people uh then 
uh, what happens is you have this media that just pretends like this isn't something that they have any responsibility to cover. And it's very shameful uh, because this is what our country did. This is what uh, we have done to these people. And for us to turn away and not continue to give it coverage, Mm -hmm. which is the least we could do. I mean, really, honestly, if we're not going to give Iraqis who were tortured justice in our U.S. court system, which we've all decided collectively is not going to happen, Mm -hmm. our government won't let them have justice. If that's something that we've decided to accept, then the least we can do is at least pay attention to them as they are trying to become a peaceful and just society because we started something there. Whether we like it or not at this point, we have a responsibility to that country not to meddle in their affairs, not to not to disrupt the progress but to, but to not to not arm to not arm the government that or puppet regime uh with like more weapons to use against its people uh in really horrific ways i, I guess what i'm saying is we, we you you know go to fairness and accuracy and reporting and they have this really good page that goes through the timeline of events that happened in the run-up to the Iraq invasion. And it points out the individuals who were cheerleading going and invading Iraq and who were putting and, and, and reporting and repeating the false intelligence that was manufactured in order to make the case for war. And listen to what they're saying and, and then, you know, even afterwards and, and trying to retroactively justify their role, saying that, well, in the end, Saddam Hussein needed to leave so that the people of Iraq could be free. Well, if you really believe that, I mean, look, I mean, come on, like, let's have some dignity here. If you really believe that, can you look at Iraq and say that that, that we have even come close to giving Iraq the society that, that we wanted to leave behind when we left? And, and don't you owe it to yourself because you believe that – that Iraq was going to become a free and just society because of the United States. And when we have failed so miserably, don't you owe it to yourself to make that a part of what you do in your coverage, to constantly question Mm -hmm. what it is that the United States is doing in the world, to say that, in fact, maybe we do get it wrong. Maybe we shouldn't bomb and invade as the sort of empire that we like to act as. And I think that's the issue, is that those people, those journalists, uh, they don't... uh they they have an ideology of their own they're very they're, they're pro empire and i think that you know covering iraq in, a, in an honest way even today uh is like a threat to their worldview a, a lot of the time um and i think that's one reason why why you you know we don't and i, I do just want to point out in another sense like there is also like another you know other horrific thing happening right now in the middle east not too far from iraq and that's what's happening in syria and while the us is certainly not um responsible for what's happening in syria uh especially with the you know not in nowhere near like the way in iraq at least i mean the us has played like a, a bit of a role in arming certain factions and I, I you know I would argue that some of the, that some of the weapons going to some of the most fundamentalist groups in Syria are coming from Iraq so they're technically US weapons whether the US you know uh intended them to like get funneled in or not but the point is that like that that the group of people that you know were cheering on bombing Iraq were you know, were the same people who were cheering on bombing Syria not too long ago um and, you know, I, I, to save the Syrian people. And now, like, a couple, like, a year, almost a year later, and, like, you know, there's been, like, you know, like, 150,000 deaths. And, I mean, there's, like, more and more horror we keep learning that's happening in Syria on a regular basis. And, like, the Assad regime is just, like, criminal and, you know, drops barrel bombs on civilians, like, regularly. And it's awful. Um, I just want to point out that those people who are cheering for war aren't, you know, they, they had to back down because, like, they didn't get to, they didn't get their, you know, their, their, their wish to bomb Syria. Um, but, you know, they, they, at the time, their their thing was that they cared so much about the Syrian people because look what they're going through. Well, uh, there's a really big refugee problem right now over there, like a huge refugee problem. Um, I think it's like the UN recently called it the biggest, uh, the, the largest number uh, or the largest, like, number of refugees or rate of refugees in human, in, in like, in, in, uh, in, like, right now in world, in, in human history, do they say? I don't know if that's maybe... It was something along those lines. It was like something really crazy like that, where it was like, oh my God, it's that bad. Something like 40% of the people of Syria have been like driven from their homes and are either internally displaced 
or they're like in near, you know, in, in surrounding countries where they're not being treated very well either. Uh, especially in places like Lebanon, where like it's like overcapacity. Lebanon's a really tiny country and has like the most Syrian refugees. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's happening right now. And what I want to point out is that none of these people who wanted to bomb Syria to save the Syrian people are saying anything about these refugees. Nothing. Yeah. They're not saying anything about helping them. Like the United States has, like the United States and Western countries in general, like are, are taking in the fewest amount of refugees uh, and are like in the United States specifically spending like some of the least amount of money like per capita uh, on helping in Syria. Uh, so, and like none of these people are advocating for helping these people. None of these people are advocating for letting Syrians come to the United States. Like all they care about when it comes to this kind of stuff is bombing and regime change. Like they never, they're not interested in human rights the way they say they are is my point. Um, like, like you or I might be. And I mean, I, for one, like, I, I don't even know, like, I don't even know how Syria is fixable. And sometimes I wonder if, you know, I, I, I know that it wasn't right. It wouldn't have been right to bomb it because I don't think it would have helped. I think it would have made it worse, but just because it's so bad there, like sometimes I wonder, well, what, you know, what's, how much worse really could it have made it? Right. But I mean, that's beside the point. I think the point is that like now no one's, t- like none of these people are talking about like what's happening in Syria in the sense of what else can be done other than bombing it. And I, I, I largely agree with you. And I think that, you know, as we, as we, as we wrap up our show here, uh, the, the reason why we are, are so passionate about the things that we are talking about here is because I think we look around at other people who are journalists like us and, and we wonder, like, how can you continue to consistently do your job and and not have the same questions that we have and not have the same interest in seeing that this sort of thing doesn't happen? And you have a conversation in the media about war weariness. This is something that Bill Crystal has started, people talking about – how this country is suffering from war weariness. Like it's a disease. Yeah, and you don't hear people ever talk about us being weary of peace. I mean, it's not, man, are we too hung up on being, um, I'm sorry, you don't hear people talking about how uh, we need to get to peace. You, you, you talk about how people want to get more war. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's so backward that the the this is a problem like how could this be a problem that there isn't more of a willingness to go to war even military generals i will argue in the pentagon would look at someone like crystal and say are you fucking kidding me you know well, yeah, because like, like it's not like crystal or it's not like his kids are gonna go fight these wars or his grandkids or however old that guy's like a dinosaur um but yeah, like it's like when they, it's none of these people are going to fight like ever. The none of these people, these people who want war, they're not they're like they're not enlisting. So I think that's a good point as well. Is like yeah, when the military looks at that, like or people in the military look at that, like I imagine what crosses their mind because they're Be- the ones who would be shipped off to go do the dirty work. Yeah, because these people who talk about Iran and how we haven't bombed their nuclear facilities. Well, I can tell you the reason is because the Pentagon's looked at that and said <laughs> it's a really horrible idea. Like, do you really want to open that can of worms? And, and the oh, the are, you going to be, are you going to be the one who's responsible when that spirals out of control and it'll be worse than Iraq? Well, then also there's the fact that, like, the Pentagon or, like, the CIA itself says that has, like, conceded that uh, Iran is not producing a nuclear weapon. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so, like, it would be like, Stu, like, it's like, why would you bomb it if it's not? Yeah, that's another point. But I mean, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I guess this episode took a bit more of like a dark turn than we'd expected. But it's that bad, you guys. Like, it's that, it's that terrible. Um, it's that much horrific, like atrocious, uh, appalling, uh, uh, like appalling. Uh, the, the crimes, the crimes that we've committed in these places and in, in these regions of the world, I mean, are that bad to the point where, like, yeah, it takes a really dark turn when you're talking about it. But just, you know, in the future, like, 
just be, when you're reading, especially right now when you're leading, reading about Russia, and, you know, it is really deep. It's so easy, like, to demonize Russia, to demonize Putin. I mean, he makes it really easy because he's kind of an asshole. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just consider the source. Always consider the source. And, like, especially, like, you know, especially when it comes to this particular region of the world right now because it's, you know, as bizarre as it is, it seems like neoconservatives are, are really excited about uh, potentially using force uh, against uh, their fellow white people, which is different. And, quest- <laughs> and question this obsession with RT and question what they are doing in beating up on this media organization that has very little influence on what the American people are thinking about right. any given issue and be concerned that they are going to write stories like Kerchik wrote about apparently the Daily Beast is now paying him to watch RT and write about it. Are which you kidding? Is horribly pathetic. That is. Uh, and uh, that sounds like a waste of money. And uh, so be weary of this and how they're trying to get what they're saying about RT to drive the sort of coverage that's coming out of the U.S. media. That's because it can be used to whip the media into line. It can have... uh, It worked. It worked a couple uh, weeks ago with Oswald's resignation. It whipped the media into line immediately. They all got on board. She was like, no questions asked. She was like, on every channel and they were talking about it and they were repeating what she said and, and they were having Kerchik on to comment and call, you know, anybody who did, who was like disagreed with him even slightly, like, a, a, you know, call them, call them a lunatic and a Putinist and whatever else, you know, crazy smear he could throw at people that doesn't seem to be working now that we've written this piece. So that seems <laughs> like, uh, that's, that seems like a, a very good place to maybe, wrap the show. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like we had a very productive conversation because it's important to confront, uh, the reality of media and, and look at it full scale. Uh, you know, I, I was drawn into a segment that Abby Martin did interviewing Chank eager about the, um, about the state of media, basically about journalistic integrity, about, uh, what is going on and looking at the spectrum of media and, and where RT fits into these issues and then where do other U.S. media outlets fit into these issues. And one of the things that did stand out to me, I don't think I need to add any editorial comment to it at all, but one of the things that I ended up tweeting that went off and, and people were really uh, interested in re- – you know, everybody was retweeting it was this thing that uh, was said by Chank basically that, you know, look, Abby – you're still at RT. You haven't been asked to go. But I was at MSNBC, and because I was saying things about the Obama administration that they didn't want me to, I was encouraged to leave and, in fact, did. And they didn't want me to have free speech on MSNBC. So, you know, just consider that. I'm not going to say that that's a statement on RT. But I think it's certainly a statement on the U.S. media. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for listening and joining us for our 10th episode. Um, I know the atmosphere is usually a little bit more fun, but, you know, war is pretty dark. So uh, we'll be back next week with hopefully a bit of a lighter mood. Um, but, yeah, thanks for sticking with us for 10 episodes. <laughs>